Uh, all right, so uh, this precious morning, we begin a new book, and uh, I'd love to tell you we're going to go through a book, you know, in one morning, but we're not. And so I'm choosing to divide the book of Jude into two parts. We'll do uh, part one this morning and part two next weekend. And if you would, take your Bible and open it to the book of Jude with me, the book of Jude. And if you need a Bible, uh, please just slip up your hand. Dean, Ken, and Ed are more than willing to see to it that you can follow along with your ears as well. Follow along with your eyes so you can read it. We're going to congregationally have a few verses to read, and then I'll back us up and walk us through the beginning of the book. Uh, we are going to read verses 20 through 25 congregationally this morning. Um, and as I said, then I'll back us up and begin walking us through it verse by verse. But could you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'll take verse 20, if you'll take verse 21, uh, and so forth. When we get to verses 24 and 25, I want us to read it together. So, the book of Jude, verse 20, reads, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 21, And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. Verse 23. Let's read these two together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And Lord, we say yes and amen to that. And as we uh, take this opportunity to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church, through your servant Jude, who was so faithful, to write as the Holy Spirit gave him utterance. We ask you to unveil our eyes as we sang earlier, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to place a title on this study of the book of June, Jude, a warning for then and now. Because as we work through this, we will find it very clear that Jude knew he wanted to write, but as he began to put pen to paper, ink quill to parchment, he knew because of what was going on around him in uh, his local vicinity that it was imperative that he write this treatise that constitutes a warning 
to the Christian church, to the believers in his day, and consequently uh, to our day now. And so we will find a great exhortive content in here that is amazingly applicable. I mean, written thousands of years ago, uh, as the scripture tells us, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Uh, There is nothing that's new that hasn't already been known and understood by God. And particularly when we look at human history as it relates to mankind's uh, plight here on planet Earth and human history as it relates to mankind's relationship or lack thereof with God, human history seems to repeat itself. And so we find this first launch into what Jude knew was uh, um, a necessary an important plea to the church. I draw your attention to verse 1. In where we read, uh, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. A couple of things. If you're taking note, this is... Uh, Clearly, uh, Jude, from the scriptures, he was also known as uh, Labaesus and Thaddeus. Uh, He is the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, uh, same mother as Jesus, different father, of course, right? Because Jesus had no father. He, He is God incarnate. He is the second person of the triune Godhead, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus himself had no dad. Mary was uh, found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. But Mary went on with Joseph to have other children. James was one. Jude is another. The references are clear. Luke 6.16, Matthew 10.8. Definitely the brother, physical brother of Jesus. And what's important about stressing that point is that we should take note of the order in which Jude views himself. You see, he views himself first and foremost as a bondservant of Jesus. He could have, you know, put the brother first. Hey, I'm Jesus' brother. I want you all to listen to me. Y'all, he wouldn't have been from the South, but I want every one of you to listen to what I'm going to say in this writing because I'm his brother. No. There's, There's a greater allegiance, a more important association. There is a stronger identification of sanctity and um, veracity of the letter in which he's about to write because he declares himself firstly a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the brother of James, 
whom those reading would have known. Oh, yes, Jude and James, they were Jesus' brother. Hopefully, many of you this morning know that that term bondservant in the New Testament is the carryover of a Old Testament truth uh, about what a bondservant was or is. The term itself means willing slave, bond servant. In other words, I'm I'm Jesus' slave, not uh, because I'm being forced to, but because I willingly want to be the slave of the master, my master, Jesus Christ. And it is a carryover in the New Testament of an Old Testament principle established all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. You see, in uh, the ancient world and predominantly through the time of the forming of the nation of Israel, prior to the forming of the nation of Israel, uh, in, uh, throughout all of human history in that period of time, slavery did not have the huge negative connotation that it has in our culture. Yes, there were uh, comparable instances of it of slavery being uh, abused and the slave being wrongly treated. And of course, we know that uh, the nation of Israel became a slave in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. But but slavery, to be a servant in a home, often carried with it um, care. You cared for those to whom were your master, and they saw to it that your basic needs were met. And in the history of the nation of Israel, as they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt brought into the promised land and again established that in their homes they would have servants and that many of their servants would be Israelites, Hebrews, that oftentimes when uh, a neighboring Hebrew could not put together enough for his uh, basic needs, food, clothing, For his family, Uh, he would become an indentured servant of his neighbor or someone close by so that his household could survive and do well. And the law of Moses gave a, a very important contract, if you will, to that servitude that the servant was to be a servant for seven years. And at the end of seven years, if that servant uh, wanted to now go, had saved uh, up enough to buy a small piece of land, to uh, prepare their own home, uh, had figured out how to care for their family or themselves, that servant could leave. But if that servant found that within the context of that home and under the the direction and care uh, of, of his or her master, his, 
um, decided, you know what, life is good here. I mean, I'm going to do these kind of chores of taking care of livestock and of uh, a land and plowing and sowing and, and cleaning and, and all of that. I'm going to do all of that no matter where I go, but I'm, it, life is good right here. So I'm going to remain here in this household, oftentimes with their own living quarters or their own room, and because I love my master. I love how my master cares for me. I love that I am not left destitute and that, that there's a, a loving relationship between the two of us, though it's a servanthood relationship. He is my master. I am the servant. I'm going to stay here. If that was the servant's resolve, this is beautiful to me uh, uh, for many reasons, but the master would take that servant out to the front of their home and on the doorpost of, of that home, there would be a lentil and a doorpost. The servant would be placed against the doorpost of that home, and the master would take an awl. You know what an awl is? It's just it would be a, a piece of metal, and he would take his earlobe and uh, place it up against that, and wham! Right through the ear, place a hole. And an earring would be placed there. And for the rest of that servant's life, whenever he was in a community amongst others, they would know that he was a willing slave of his master. Have you allowed Christ to pierce your ear? I remember when I was still searching for purpose and answers, and a lot of that meant uh, leather bell bottoms, cut off tie dye shirts, and long red hair that went down to here. And I remember being infatuated by uh, feathered earrings, and I thought, I want one of those. And so sure enough, I decided, I went out and found me this nice feather and put it on the earring thing. And, and I'm, I'm going to do it, you know. And somebody said, all right, I'll pierce your ear. What ear do you, which one do you want pierced? And I didn't think it mattered at the time. I watched too many Camelot movies, and I thought, right is might. <laughs> and so I said, Put it in my right ear. Well, back then, if you had an earring in your right ear, you were gay. And so the story goes. Fast forward. Come commit my life to Christ, realizing I'm... I'm uh, out of control, I'm southbound in, in where I'm headed, and I need God to ring me in. Not that any of you need that. We all need it. And uh, I gave my life to Christ and was starting to walk with Jesus and read the Bible, and I came across this bond servant. I said, oh, my goodness. 
There's the original reason for piercing the ear. And then when I found out that, you know, the right ear, what it meant, I was, oh my goodness. It's, you can still see it if you get real close. But it begs the question, you know, and maybe this is going to take us several weeks to go through because there's stuff here that you just should not rush through. And it begs the question, have you allowed Christ to pierce your ear? Are you his bondservant? Is that your greater association? He says he's writing to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And we find here the threefold position of, uh, of everyone uh, with, with a disclaimer, everyone, here's the disclaimer, that has acknowledged that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, that he is co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. He is not a created being. He's not an angel. He's not subservient to any. He is God incarnate. And that as God incarnate, he came out of eternity, stepped into time, lived here, and for three years explained to those that would walk with him and were listening who God the Father is, and then ultimately took upon himself the penalty of mankind's sin, went to the cross at Calvary, died a criminal death, was buried in a tomb, and resurrected the third day. You see, that's the acknowledgement that's necessary. That's the call. How many of us this morning, when we hear the phone ringing, and uh, I go back to where it was still on a wall, hanging, but now it's in your pocket or on your side. How many of us, when we hear our phone ringing, don't race to answer that call? Oh, it could be, it's important. It might be some, you answer a call. Jesus said that many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, the, the clarion call goes out to all mankind. Who will answer it? This letter is to those who have answered that call and have acknowledged Christ as the Son of God who took upon himself the sin of mankind and is the Savior. Of all. Calls them sanctified. The word means set apart. Uh, and there is also a threefold truth as it relates to being sanctified. Those who are called, those who are sanctified. When we come to faith, uh, we are set apart. As we live out our life here as Christians, we are. Uh, being set apart, and then when we are, uh, you know, graduated into heaven, we are completely set apart. I am sanctified, I am being sanctified, and I will be sanctified. 
Jude is writing to them. And then he says preserved. Preserved in Jesus Christ. I found this word very interesting in its original language and the tense. I'll read it for you. The word preserved there is in a tense that's called the aorist tense. And what it means is this. The aorist tense regards uh, the continuous preservation of the believer as a single and complete act without reference to the time occupied in its accomplishment. A single act, complete, without recognition of the time occupied within its accomplishment. So, preserved in Jesus Christ. Kept is another uh, translation. 2 Timothy 4.18, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 1.5, Those who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 17, Jesus said in verse 15, I do not pray for you, uh, I do not pray that you, praying to his Father, that should you should take them out of the world, speaking of those that follow Christ, he said, but that you should keep them, preserve them from the evil one. And so Jude here, being clear who he's writing to and, and you need to know whether or not that is you. Have you answered that call? Do you know you are sanctified? Do you understand the preservation that Christ offers to you today? And he declares mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We move from his greeting and his introduction to his emphasis to contend for the faith. Notice in verse 3, he says, uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting uh, you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unannounced, I'm sorry, unnoticed, <clears throat> who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we find here in these two verses uh, the greater purpose for his letter. He gives that greeting, but now he gets to the nuts and bolts of... Uh, he started out writing one way, but as the culture and the things that were happening around him became so much clearer, he knew he needed to uh, write in the tone in which he writes. Uh, there's a common salvation that he declares. And I love what one commentator, the way one commentator put it. He said that the letter of Jude is essentially a sermon 
In it, Jude preached against the dangerous practices and doctrines that put the gospel of Jesus Christ in peril. These were serious issues, and Jude dealt with them seriously. Uh, Another commentator put it this way, we would be happy that Jude was sensitive to the Holy Spirit here. We might have only... uh, What might have only been a letter from a Christian leader to a particular church instead became a precious instrument inspired by the Holy Spirit and valuable as a warning in these last days. And there comes the application where history past comes right up to the present time. He understood that that salvation amongst every believer that is called sanctified and preserved is a common salvation. But he also understood that it was necessary to encourage those believers to contend earnestly for the faith. The word in its original language is a root word that means to uh, agonize. We get our word agonize from it is uh, agonizio. And it means to agonize. But again, the tense, the grammar of the word is interesting. It's in something called the present infinitive. What does that mean? It means a continuous an ongoing struggle. So what Jude is saying, I'm looking around me, to paraphrase here, and I'm reading the signs of the different kind of belief systems that are out there and individuals that are espousing these different belief systems, and I am writing to you to keep on. Don't just do it once, but your entire life long Contend for the truth of the gospel. We've placed in a lot of your bulletins this morning, and I'm sorry if we ran out, if you would like one and didn't get one, is this uh, small handout. And it's for your uh, study shelf at home. Because what it is, and it's published by uh, Rose Publishing, it's a concise simple guide to help every believer understand the difference between what is biblical Christianity and what is a cult and what is a religion. And I don't know if you've been watching the news or reading the paper or My goodness, there are so many different versions of, quote, religious things out there today. Are there not? So how do you know that you're not just sitting in some off-the-wall group of people that are adhering to, you know, uh, some things that are taught here? How do you know? Do you know? Would you... Understand it if you 
walked into an environment or were led somewhere to a group of, of religious people or whatever and listened to what was being espoused and be able to say, that's not biblical, would you? When I die, I'm going to stand before one maker. And he's going to say, what did you do with those precious folks there down there in Valley Springs? Were you clear? Were you honest? Did you stay strictly to my word? And when I came across this, I was like, oh my goodness, we got to spend a little time here because of what's going on in our world today. And it reminds me, you know, Calvary Chapel in general and Calvary Chapel Valley Springs does not have the corner on biblical Christianity. Please hear me. We're not special in in any way. We join those other churches and fellowships across the world that adhere to a biblical Christianity. That's what all we're doing. Because if we're not continually seeking to go through this uh, thing called the Word of God, line by line, uh, that's where the health and the growth and the maturing for every believer happens. It, it, you know, you, not you, but I will say, how does a group of people or an individual become led astray uh, to something that is an unbiblical form of Christianity or some cult or some religious system, how do people, how does that happen? Well, it, it, there must be a diet, uh, verbal or re- reading, a diet of, of topical messages, devotional thoughts, sermons that are unbiblical, And taking this in the way in which um, we believe to be the greatest way a believer can grow is from Genesis to Revelation, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Therein is safety because you can't just set something aside because you don't want to deal with it. Like false religions that are out there today, like cults that are out there today. So uh, enjoy this little pamphlet. Take it home, look at it. Because there are people out there that want to creep in unnoticed. Still today, history repeats itself. And they're ungodly. And they pervert the truth of the grace of God into something that Jude saw as being lewd. They deny uh, the sovereignty of God the Father and they deny the deity of Jesus Christ himself.
be on guard for that. Be ready to defend that. Jude's plea uh, 2,000 years ago is the same plea today to you and I. Contend earnestly for the faith. Then he gives some uh, examples of what uh, I would call old and new apostates. Notice verse 5, he says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, and that should perk up the ear, (laughs) if you knew it once and he's going to remind you, then know that that's exactly what he's hoping to do. If you never knew this, then take it under the category of, oh, I get to learn something new that I will be reminded of my entire Christian life. He says, so though you once knew this, I'm here to remind you that the Lord, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so we enter now a subject, not just about um, wayward religious ideas or even uh, cultish gatherings, But now we enter the subject uh, of an apostate. So, a little bit different. What is an apostate? Read it for you. Webster's uh, Dictionary. An apostate defined this way. One who has forsaken the church sect, or profession to which he once adhered. I think we have it up there as well. That's what an apostate is. So so Jude, he's now turning his target toward those who at once, at one time, did adhere to... um, an orthodox Christian belief system. But they chose to forsake it, to go a different way, to go their own way. And he is going to call to the witness stand three examples for his reading audience so that he can use uh, in this court of judgment, uh, literary judgment, So that he can use these witnesses to uh, clarify that God is sovereign and an apostate is one who will receive the judgment of God. The first one he gives, calls to the witness stand, is the people that were saved out of the land of Egypt. We all know uh, who that was, right? Who was that? Who was that? Israel. If you read Hebrews 11.13, you'll be reminded, and through the story of Exodus, that it's such a beautiful story of deliverance. People crying out to be saved from the bondage to which they are in. 
And as they cry out, God answers and he leads them out of that bondage that they'd been in for 400 years. You've seen the movie. More importantly, I hope you've read the account. And as they come out, uh, God miraculously delivers them from uh, Pharaoh who comes to change his mind and wants to destroy them. They cross the Red Sea. Uh, the water comes down upon Pharaoh and his army and they continue on and uh, they come to Mount Sinai and God gives them his word and gives them his law and he takes them to the precipice, the edge, this cliff, if you will, a, a national um, geog geographical cliff he says, now, there's the land that I've delivered you to occupy. I want you to go into that land and I want you to conquer every enemy that's there. And I'm giving you this land as I have given it to your father, Abraham. Remember the account? Someone said, well, let's go spy it out to see what kind of land it is. And so, remember, there were Caleb and Joshua and the others that went in, and they went in and they spied out the land. And when they came back, there were those who saw the opportunity for growth, the opportunity for obedience to God's command as scary it's a challenge. No, there's giants in the land. If we go there, we're going to die. <clears throat> but God said, go. But if we go, we're going to die. There's giants in the land. God said he'd be with us. But if we go, there's giants in the land. We're going to die. Have you ever been afraid to do what God has commanded you to do? Fear of doing what God has commanded you to do is not abnormal. Face the fear and do it anyway, right? Well, you know, you know the Sunday school story. Let me move this guy. You know the Sunday school story. Rather, it's not a story. It's an account of something that really happened that only Caleb and Joshua said, we can do this. God is with us. And yet that generation would not go in. And so... God determined that that generation that would not go in by faith and believe that God had commanded and would stand by his word were forced to wander for 40 years until they all died off. Was God unfair? No. God simply has a way in which he's to be, um, he has a way in which mankind is to have a relationship with him. And to have a relationship with him simply means to acknowledge him as sovereign. And when he says, do this, it's, it's not an option. Like, well, I'll pick and choose. That's what reconstruction is. You know, there's something... And it's not on here, but it should be. Reconstruction is uh, there are people that had once adhered to a orthodox biblical Christianity that have decided they want to pick and choose what is good and bad in Scripture. 
And so that generation died off. Jude now calls to the stand a second witness. We find it in verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Witness number two, will you please come to the stand? The angels are on the witness stand. And they're asked, what happened? And you can read all about it. 2 Peter 2, 4, Isaiah 14, Revelation 12, 7 through 9, Revelation 12, 3 and 4 tells us that at the time of creation, that the heavenly host that were created angelic beings were, were all glorifying God. And then one of them who evidently had giftings with timbrels and uh, musical instruments, his name was Lucifer, decided that he would be like the Most High God. Read it, Isaiah 14. That he will ascend, he will make himself like the Most High God. He was cast out of heaven. And when he was cast out of heaven, the scriptures that I've given you the references to tell us that he took a third of the heavenly host with him. Angels that were once a part of, of a miraculous worship service going on around God were cast out of heaven with Lucifer as their leader, to no longer be angelic beings, but rather to be demonic beings. And Jude reminds us that God has reserved everlasting chains for them. You may step down. Jude calls the third witness to the stand in verse 7. He brings to our attention as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. If you're taking note or underline, underline that entire phrase. In similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Many of us know the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that Lot, Abraham's nephew, was delivered out of that. But God ultimately sent fire down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities uh, all around. Many of you are aware that uh, the name of the city itself speaks of of horrific sexual immorality. It is where we get our term to sodomize, which is anal sex. And clearly here, strange flesh represents a perversion of what God has intend, intended for a man and a woman 
that intercourse is to take place under the blessing and the covenant of marriage and marriage alone. And outside of that is sexually, sexual immorality. Not to that degree, but it's still under that category. But here in these cities, it was anything goes. And God says, no. He delivers Lot. Fire comes down. Judgment. And a vengeance. So that to me is like, whoa. (laughs) There's clear examples of God's meted out authoritative and appropriate consequence for the actions and choices of those to whom he's dealing with. Jude says, we'll wind it up, running out of time. He says, likewise, in verse 8, also these dreamers, now he goes back to, he's going to cover this subject of, of apostates, ones who had forsaken an orthodox Christian framework of belief and have chosen to forsake that profession to once to which they once adhered. Jude says, likewise, verse 8, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. And yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring an accusation against him, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these, again, going back to the apostate, speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. We'll stop our study there. We'll define that statement, those statements a little bit more next time we gather next week. But you can hear the tone. This is a warning to me. It's a warning to each of us that what we come to know as an orthodox Christian biblical system of belief will always be under attack. And we are encouraged and commanded to contend for it always. That's an overwhelming task, isn't it? As I sit here and think about it, oh my goodness, that's like, take a breath. It's a lifelong pursuit. And so if we haven't started today, we we start today. If we've already started, we continue. And we trust the Lord and what he's doing. 
We better pray. We're out of time. Will you join me as we pray? going to close with a word of prayer and again a, a singing of a chorus so that we can meditate on these things that the Lord has brought to our attention that as we meditate upon them he kind of seals these truths in our hearts and Lord we, uh, we this morning are thankful for your word thankful for your servant Jude who was faithful to write it all down and know that it was necessary because we're the recipients of a very precious truth a very precious warning though written thousands of years ago is still so applicable this morning applicable today so by your spirit and by your word we ask you to help us help us be those who contend for the faith every day every hour Ask it in Jesus' name.